millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey guys, Ryan here. The Somewhere in the Skies podcast is a labor of love every week. And with that comes many different costs to keep the show running. That's where our Patreon campaign comes in. You give what you think the show is worth. There's different rewards available all the time, including shoutouts on the show, early editions of main episodes, bonus episodes and content, and very soon, monthly patron hangouts, where we sit back and chat all things UFOs. So I hope you'll consider becoming a Patreon subscriber today. To learn more and to join, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you for your support and keep looking up. Enabakken region of Sweden boasts an authentic countryside setting with many rugged forests, clear lakes, and mountainous terrain. All a perfect setting for a UFO incident that occurred in 1970 over Lake Anten, leaving multiple witnesses from different areas completely stunned and putting Sweden firmly in the annals of UFO history. This is the incident at Anten Lake, and other Nordic UFOs. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. It was the evening of August 29, 1970, at approximately 11.30 p.m. Just outside of Gothenburg, near Lake Anten, multiple residents of the area would witness something truly bizarre. Reports would suggest that at least 20 witnesses, local to the area, would observe a brilliant colored sphere moving just above the treetops, which were illuminated in the wash of the glow from the object. One witness described the object as oblong, with a dome-shaped top to it. Several other witnesses would describe a soft humming sound that appeared to accompany the appearance of the object. Another witness, Mr. Carlson, a local farm owner, claimed the following. I was about to go to bed a little before midnight. I happened to look out the window, and that's when I noticed that the cars outside were all stopping in the middle of the road. I couldn't understand why. That's when my son ran in the room, and he told me something red in color was moving over the town. That's when I saw what he was talking about. A strong, red light was moving erratically over the treetops. It behaved so strangely, speeding up and slowing down. 
then it would disappear and reappear a short time later in a different spot. Carlson, along with his wife and son, would continue to watch the bizarre light as it transversed the nearby skies. That's when it began to descend. It appeared to land in the meadow in front of the forest. Then we could see several yellow and white beams emanating from the object. We watched it for several hours, concerned but more curious than anything. Eventually, we decided to finally go to bed. It was still there as we all fell asleep. Although the Carlson family wouldn't see what happened, it was reported that the object had disappeared from the forest at some point. Another witness was one Mr. Nielsen. He was one of the motorists who had stopped his car on the road that night to watch the craft overhead. He claimed that around 11.30 p.m., he and a friend were driving along the highway. That's when they noticed a red light moving to and fro and up and down in the sky. Every now and then, it would stand still. The traffic all stood still as well, everyone watching the object. They watched for about 10 minutes before the traffic started moving, and they had no choice but to drive on. At around the same time, one Mrs. Aronson, along with her friend, witnessed a bright illuminated ball which was moving across the sky just above the trees. She would further describe the object as being an extremely bright red. Another motorist, Mrs. Olson, was driving home with her husband after visiting friends. They would notice a strange glowing object at just short of half past midnight. They would describe the object as looking similar to a rear lamp on a car and watched it for three to four minutes before carrying on their way. As well as the witnesses on the road near the Carlson's farm, there were eight further witnesses who would observe events from the other side of town. For example, one Mr. Johansson would claim the following. My wife, two friends, and I first witnessed a bright red ball above the area at around 11.45 p.m. It appeared to be the size of a full moon. Aside from the bizarre movements, only the bright glowing red color indicated that it wasn't in fact our celestial companion. We watched the object move up and down and to and fro over the top of the trees of the forest. At one point, we even saw something like a beam of light coming from the ground. The light was constant and reflected off the surface of the nearby lake. I was so intrigued that I asked the husband of one of our friends to drive to the source of the light near the forest. As we neared the forest, we encountered another vehicle, a blue sob with two men watching the light. After brief discussions about it with these two men, the light suddenly disappeared. Johansson and the other witnesses in his car would see the strange glowing object again at around 1 a.m. from their home. Strangely, Johansson also found unexplained indentations on the ground near to where the lights appeared to be shining upward the previous evening. The indentations were approximately 10 feet apart in an equilateral triangle. Even stranger, there was a near-perfect circle approximately 40 centimeters in width and around 7 centimeters in depth. The depth of these impressions would suggest that the object that made them was extremely heavy. Johansson would phone a local investigator the following morning to analyze the trace evidence of what Johansson believed 
was from the object the night prior. The investigator, one Mr. Limu, would state the following. Due to the depth of each indentation point, this would suggest that the object had an overall weight of approximately five tons. Even how the indentations were made would suggest that the object that made them had most likely come from above. This, of course, would not only match the eyewitness statements that claimed to see the glowing object land in a meadow near the forest, but also that the lights seen by multiple witnesses were, and by large, in the same area as the indentations now were. Furthermore, given there were no broken trees or branches around the indentation, I would estimate that the object could have been a maximum of 28 feet across. Word began to spread about this unusual craft seen over Lake Anten and in the surrounding forest, and subsequent investigations would also take place to determine what it was. Based on information from the police and the press, as well as an investigation by Tage Erickson of the Research Institute for National Defense, a general explanation began to take hold that the entire incident wasn't something supernatural or otherworldly. It was simply a hoax. Erickson believed that it was either specifically or something akin to a hot air balloon set aloft by at least two people. Those people, Erickson insinuated that the hoaxers were the two men in the blue sob that Johansson and the other witnesses had spoken to at the edge of the forest. However, when UFO researchers interviewed the alleged hoaxers, they denied being both the perpetrators of the hoax or the two men at the scene on the night in question. They would also rightly point out that their car was a green Fiat. One report even suggested that the reasons for promoting the balloon hoax story were to calm the old man, Johansson, who lived at the property where the object had landed. It should also be noted that radioactivity tests were taken as well from the soil around the supposed landing site. The tests, conducted by the Chalmers Institute of Technology and Nuclear Chemistry, yielded no unusual results. There's also a question of tire marks allegedly found on the lawn near Johansson's house. Could these have been made by the vehicle of the hoaxers? Or might they have been from the mystery Blue Sob? If so, just who was driving that vehicle? Were they merely investigating the light like Johansson? Or might they have been at the location in a official capacity of some sort? Of the sighting at Anten Lake, investigators would eventually conclude that the incident either was a clever hoax, or that the object, whatever it was, was something truly unknown. But perhaps even more interesting, at least according to reports at the time, is that the region in question had experienced about a dozen very similar sightings going back to the fall of 1969. Most of these encounters would be described as almost identical red or yellow objects. Perhaps even more interesting was the strange humming, or as one witness would recall, a whistling noise that also accompanied these sightings. Could these have been the same mysterious object sighted over Anten Lake? While the Anten Lake incident is intriguing, even more intriguing is that many other sightings occurred over other Nordic countries in the early 1970s as well. 
Although the exact date is unknown, the following incident was said to have taken place in October of 1970. At around 11.30 p.m. on the night in question, over the town of Helleland in Norway, a motorist, Rydar Sylvesen, would arrive home following a particularly grueling journey from a business trip as a market advisor. That's when he noticed a bright glowing light overhead. He would, however, despite the incident weighing on his mind, continue to negotiate the relatively quiet roads under the constant downpour of rain. Salvesen had been driving for around six hours. He would continue to keep the object in his sight and carried on along his route, desperate to get home. When he arrived home, he would go straight inside and immediately tell his wife about the incident. He would state to her that he had undergone a strange experience that he had no explanation for. What's more, it was both a frightening sight, but at the same time, fantastic. He would then relate the incident to his enthralled and slightly confused wife in full. I'd set off on my journey around uh, 5.30pm, and while the journey was largely uneventful at first, I soon noticed a dazzling light in the skies overhead. It was so bright that I had to stop my vehicle in order to attempt to look at it. When I opened the car door, I noticed I noticed a bright circular object above the roadway. The object was completely silent and would move forward with speed before coming to a stop. It would repeat this several times. The next thing I realized, however, the object was only several feet from my vehicle. I reached into the open window of the car and grabbed my notepaper in order to compose a sketch of the bizarre object. It was, for lack of better words, a classic flying saucer. There were no doors, windows, or hatches. Neither were there any joints, grooves, or um, any type of connecting seam. The only differentiating feature of the metallic exterior was a part at the edge of the body that had the appearance of uh, corrugated iron. I couldn't be certain, but, but the object was close to me for what felt like a minute or so. Then, without warning, it, it shot straight up in the air at great speed. The next thing I knew, I was falling to the ground, landing in a sitting position, knocked off balance by the blast of the takeoff. As Sylvesen was coming to his senses with the realization that he had fallen to the ground, he was also coming to terms with the fact that he had also heard a loud cracking sound. When he pulled himself to his feet, he could see a large crack in the front window of his car. He instinctively looked up to the sky and noticed that the disc was now nothing more than a bright red-yellow object similar to a fireball. Then it vanished out of sight. He returned his attention to his car once more. He noticed there was broken and splintered glass on the seats and the floor. It was around this time that he realized he had cut himself when he had fallen to the ground. Careful not to injure himself further, he returned inside his vehicle and then started the engine. After moving the vehicle to the side of the road out of the way of any oncoming traffic, he would quickly sweep the seats of glass. Then, after testing the lights, brakes, and engine, he would set out on his way home. Several hours later, he would inform his wife of the incident. Around two months later, in January of 1971, this time in Finland, another similar incident would unfold. 47-year-old Mano Talasa was eating breakfast with his wife, Marta, at their farmhouse in the village of Sapunki. Marta would state the following about what happened next. It was while we were eating that we noticed a bright light heading toward us through the kitchen window. 
This light appeared to be at a low altitude and was not moving particularly fast. But most unnerving was the fact that this lighted object would land directly outside our kitchen window. The light was blinding. In fact, the entire area in the vicinity of our home and beyond was covered in a light blue glow. We watched this bright object for several moments outside the window before suddenly it took off into the sky and disappeared. As it did so, all of the electricity in our home went out for several minutes before turning back on. The pair would then go about their normal daily chores, attempting to put the bizarre episode out of their minds. However, when daylight began to fade, they would notice something outside their home. There was a strange indentation in the snow, exactly at the same place where the glowing object had landed. It appeared to be three indentations that formed an equilateral triangle. But even more interesting was that in the middle of the triangle, all of the snow had been completely melted, the grass showing through. Even stranger still, the grass appeared to have changed color to a sickly gray-blue. Mono, the husband, would take a sample of the earth in this particular spot. The following day, he would visit the local newspaper offices. The newspaper would begin to investigate the incident and would soon discover that the Talasas were not the only ones to witness the bizarre object. Not only did their immediate neighbors witness the strange glowing object land and take off from the Talasas property, but several other witnesses, some up to three miles away, also saw the mysterious object. There are other intriguing details to note. For example, the object could definitely not be explained away like a balloon of any kind, due to its movements into a relatively strong wind. Even more interesting, several scientists who examined the soil samples would suggest something along the lines of a meteorite or a lightning strike to have caused the change in the elements of the soil. However, a meteor could be ruled out almost immediately. Given the number of witnesses, a meteor would have been easily recognizable to most if not all of them. Furthermore, the first sighting in the village was at 5.58 a.m., with the last at 6.15 a.m., with that of the Talasas. Lightning could also be ruled out, as the sightings of the strange lighted object lasted almost 20 minutes. No lightning strike could ever last that long. Whatever it truly was remains a mystery. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Returning to Sweden, the following case file comes directly from the research and voice of author and occultist Fred Andersson. On March 23 of 1974, in the community of Valentuna, north of Stockholm, something utterly strange happened. So strange that it's still talked about 48 years later. Hilvi Andersson, who had celebrated her 36th birthday a few days earlier, was at home with her three children, Cecilia, Elizabeth and Robert. When some friends cancelled their appointment at 7.30pm, she picked up the phone to call her parents, Svea and Hildor, in the area of Orkesta, just a 13-minute car drive away, to see how they were doing. For reasons unknown, she couldn't get through, which made her worried. So worried that she took the kids, loaded them into the car, and started driving to her parents' desolate, isolated country home. While driving up to Lindholmer Road to Orkestra, she noticed something in the sky. A strong, circular-shaped light that seemed to be following them. It first showed up near the Vasa school and was visible until they reached the Orkestra sports field, where it suddenly shrunk to the size of an orange and quickly disappeared up into the sky. They didn't think too much about it. Maybe it was a bright star, a planet, or even a helicopter in the distance. But the odd light was still in Hilvi's mind as she drove her car up to her parents' yard at Malmen 5, a traditional Swedish two-story red house with white rims. Her father Hildor met them on the porch and told Hilvi that the telephone was out of order and the television was suffering from technical interference. The latter annoyed him. It was almost 8pm and with only two TV channels in Sweden, it wasn't uncommon to sit down after dinner to watch the evening news. Hillevi told him about the light that was following them, and almost instantly they saw something at the other side of the road, where the old quarry lies. A strong bright light hovering above the trees, and beside it a smaller ball of light moving in a zigzag pattern. Soon they saw that the lights belonged to some kind of craft, oval-shaped with three beams coming up from the ground into the ship. The whole family froze in terror and the kids started to scream. Hilvi's daughter threw herself on the ground and refused to get up. Suddenly the craft shrank to the size of an orange, lifting vertically with incredible speed and disappeared out of sight. When everyone calmed down, they decided to go to Hilvi's brother, Hilding, in Skrattbacken, five minutes away by car. During the short drive, the alleged UFO was not seen from their point of view. But on arrival, Hilding's wife met them outside and immediately asked them about the light following their car, something Hilvi hadn't noticed. At this moment, both families were scared and Hilvi decided to leave both out of fear and curiosity. After all that had happened, she really wanted to see the strange object again. Hilding took his own car to escort them and soon saw a hat-shaped object fly above and in front of his vehicle and behind Hilvis. Not long after, the larger, 
oval-shaped object was observed at a distance of 400 meters in front of them, hovering in the air approximately 10 meters above the ground. Hillevi noticed how the smaller orange-colored ball floated nearby. The two objects started following Hillevi and her children, but somehow in all this terror, curiosity began to grow even stronger, and she parked the car to see what was going on. The light was now above them and filled the car with a strong light. Hillevi stopped her daughter from leaving the car. She later claimed that something told her to go outside. After a while, the bright large object went away, but before it vanished, it stopped at a barn, hovered for a while, and then ventured further out of sight. In total, during the whole evening, Hillevi estimates that she and her family saw the phenomenon for 40 minutes. The day after, Hillevi called the police to report the incident, but they were clearly very uninterested. Instead, she called Swedish National Defense Research Institute, who politely took down her statement. Their UFO administrator, Tag Eriksson, a job he had had since 1965, was a hardcore skeptic and suggested it was some kind of a balloons. A standard answer he often gave to such incidents, but his mind was about to be changed. A while later, a representative from the police contacted Hilvi and apologized for how she was treated, because she wasn't alone in her strange, otherworldly UFO experience. During March 23 and 24, the police collected 76 reports from 31 witnesses in total, all from different parts of the Valentuna area, each of them describing the same strange, eerie light sometimes describing it as oval or egg-shaped. A former blacksmith, 90-year-old Carl Johansson, was convinced the sun had risen early when he saw the craft, as the light was so strong. In the end, there were 43 days of sightings in the area during the spring of 1974. The night before all of this, school janitor Justa Hager was going home after a social gathering in Markim. Along his path, close to the ground, he noticed a strange light. It grew increasingly stronger, moving closer to him. Out of curiosity, he walked towards it and was thrown down to the ground by a powerful force. A while later, he found himself outside his home in Lindholmen, with a bleeding wound in the head, bruises to his face and no memory of what happened to him. He woke up his wife, frantically ringing the doorbell. The day after, he called the National Defense, who recommended him to contact Hardy Bornholm, who later became more involved in the case as an official investigator and collector of information. On April 1st and May 24th the same year, he met Chief Physician Ture Arvidsson at the Danderyd Hospital and went through two hypnotic regressions. Justa described how he was taken aboard some kind of craft and was examined by four semi-transparent men. In the second session, describing them as Native Americans. They might also have worn hoodies, as they had no noses or ears. The beings gave him a mission, but he was vague about the details other than his mission might happen in the year 2000. 
According to Justa, they also put some kind of instrument against his forehead, which caused a burning pain. Outside of the incident in Valentuna, Justa also claimed that since childhood, after an accident in which he fell from a tree and lost an eye, to have a higher sensibility for precognition and other extrasensory perceptions. Justa was described as a down-to-earth man that didn't place too much importance in his experiences. From this experience in 1974, he received a wound in the forehead and was something that considered burn marks at the time, but seemed more closely related to bruises. He never claimed his experience was related to aliens. He just didn't know what happened to him. Hillevi was offered a hypnosis session, but refused because she didn't suffer any kind of memory loss. Other witnesses could corroborate Justa's experience. A woman cyclist had seen the light at the same place on the same time. Two men, unaware of each other, claimed to have seen a metallic object at the field where Justa had his encounter. And a couple had seen what they first thought was a new water tower, with lights coming out from its top windows. But understood later, there was no water tower there. Other witnesses experienced bodily pain, including Hillevi, who explained her pain as if she were about to break into two pieces at the waist. There was vomiting, migraine, and a higher level of white blood cells. One side effect of radioactivity, but also stress. When Hillevi returned to the quarry together with her husband and a representative from the National Home Defense, Hardy Bornholm, they found three smaller wedge-shaped marks in the ground and several trees had lost their tops. A while later, the National Defense Research Institute arrived at the scene, specifically at the ancient Vasakullen in the small community of Lindholmen, to take samples of burned grass and soil. According to witnesses, they were wearing protective clothing. The commander-in-chief at the time, Stig Synegren, ordered the home defense to place people on two positions in the area in the weeks that followed, to be able to study a possible return of the phenomenon from different angles. It was officially declared a military exercise, Operation S. According to documents from the Swedish National Defense Research Institute, it was concluded that there was an alleged physical object over Valentuna that night, but no one could come up with a logical explanation. What's lesser known is that the first sighting of the area had already happened months earlier. It was on New Year's Eve in Torsholma, less than 10 kilometers from the later incidents. It was between 1 and 2 a.m. in the morning, and a company of four to five people were walking home from a New Year celebration at a neighbor's house. In front of them, a big cigar-shaped object with a strong, luminous light and a row of windows came floating above the ground and stopped by the edge of a forest. They studied the object for, depending on which witness you ask, between seven seconds and two minutes. Then it dissolved and disappeared in front of their eyes. It was 10 minus Celsius, no wind, and neither of the witnesses had any logical explanation for what they had seen. 
Some of the sightings could have been stars, planets, satellites and even airplanes coming in and out of Arlanda Airport 30 kilometers away. But the landing of the oval-shaped craft is not in the realm of those theories. On the downside, the investigation at the time was conducted towards a flying saucer alien bias. This might have affected the memories of experience of those involved. For example, during the hypnosis sessions, leading questions may have been asked. On the other hand, the witnesses have stood by the stories ever since, with little to no detail changing over the years. It should be noted that the esoteric connection is strong, both in regards to where Justa Hager was allegedly abducted on an ancient hill near two runestones, and his overall experiences before, under and after the incident. But what makes the story even more interesting is that Hillevi had a near-death experience as a child, exactly at the same spot where the UFO hovered near her parents' house. The quarry was used as a place for swimming during the summer. The four-year-old Hillevi fell into the water and lost consciousness. She basically drowned. After being saved by her father, she remembered how she was surrounded by beautiful lights and a general sense of peace. Is it too much of a coincidence that this, much later, was also the place for her close encounter? For Hillevi, this had a connection of some sort, and it means something to her. No matter what, the Valentina UFO flap will continue to be a magnificent mystery. Returning back to Finland, two extraordinary close encounters were said to have occurred. The incidents in question happened just over a year apart from each other, at locations separated by 300 miles. On the afternoon of January 7, 1970, at around 4.45 p.m., near the small village of Imjarvi, Woodman Heinenen and Esko Viho were each skiing down one of the snow-covered hills in the region towards one of the glades they would use as a resting spot. Although it was not yet dark, the sky had taken a dark orange glow, announcing the immediate arrival of the night. A few stars were already visible, and the sky itself was clear and cloudless. It was cold and rapidly getting colder, below freezing temperatures. As they were resting and catching their breath, a buzzing noise suddenly became apparent to them, as did the strange light moving quickly across the darkening sky. Each watched the object as it approached their location. As it moved closer, it also descended. The faint buzzing was now considerably louder, proving that whatever this object was, it was definitely the source of the noise. Suddenly, this craft stopped its descent and hovered. A red-gray mist appeared to cloak the object, moving in a swirling motion. The descent began again, only much slower. They would describe the craft as round or disc-shaped, but with a flat underside. It also had the appearance of a metallic exterior. The object would halt its descent at around 12 feet from the ground so close that Heinenen would claim that he could have touched it if he had reached up with his ski pole. 
Heinonen would further claim that atop of the craft featured a dome and three spheres or domes spaced equidistantly along a raised part on the lower edge. In the middle of the underside of the craft was a projected tube. As the men watched, an intense beam of light suddenly flashed from this tube directly downwards. This light would illuminate the snow on the ground before disappearing. This was repeated several times. It was as the two men watched this bizarre light display that Heinonen had the sudden feeling that somebody had seized his waist from behind and pulled him backward. It was then that he saw the creature. Standing in the middle of the beam of light was a small humanoid about three feet in height. In its hands was a dark black box. He could see a yellow glow that seemed to come from inside the box. The creature was dressed in a green overall type outfit, and what skin was exposed was pale like wax. The arms and legs were extremely thin, while on its feet were a pair of green boots. Viho would recall that the frame of the creature was like a child, and that it wore a conical helmet on its head which was shining like metal. Without warning, the creature turned the box towards Heinonen, pointing it towards him, as if it were a weapon. A red-gray mist formed out of nowhere, and large sparks started to fly from the illuminated snow. Many of these sparks would hit Heinonen, but they did not cause any injury. Viho would recall how the sparks were shining in several colors. As this was happening, the creature was no longer visible. The thick red mist covered it entirely. Then, without warning, the beam melted, flew up like a flickering flame, and was sucked into the gap of the craft. The mist, the light, and the creature were now gone. Heinonen, however, was unable to move his right side following the incident, and his friend would have to assist him in their journey home. Although this paralysis was temporary, the incident would have a profound effect on Heinonen. He would report numerous sightings following the initial encounter. One of these was a meeting with a blonde alien who he attempted to photograph, which in turn caused her to disappear. While many cite these claims as reason to dismiss the Imjarvi incident entirely, other witnesses that evening would suggest the encounter to be true. Around 10 miles away in Paisjarvi, Elna Satari was doing chores on her farm when she saw an intensely bright light in the direction of Heinonen in Viho's location. The time of the sighting was just before 5pm. Just over 6 miles away in Paso, a young boy collecting firewood before it became too dark to do so would see the bizarre bright light also. Perhaps an even more bizarre incident happened in the summer of 1970 when the two men, along with a Swedish journalist, a photographer, and an interpreter, went to the location of the incident. As they stood talking, each of the three visitors' hands suddenly glowed in intensely bright and unnatural red. At the same time, Heinonen suddenly experienced an intense headache, much like the one he experienced in the aftermath of the sighting. Needless to say, the expedition was cut short. Regardless of Heinonen's later claims, this incident of January 7, 1970 remains open to investigation. 
Shortly after 8 p.m. on February 2nd, 1971, Sinika Kutinen and her friend, known only as Mrs. Maninen, were driving towards Ulu in the Kaminki region of Finland. As they did so, each had noticed a strange light behind them in the night sky. As they continued to watch, the light suddenly rushed towards their moving vehicle. It then proceeded to keep pace with them, cruising along their left-hand side. They would bring the car to a stop near a field at the side of the road. Suddenly, the light vanished. In its place, however, was a strange three-foot-tall creature. It adorned a helmet and a brown-green suit. The strange creature crossed the road in front of them and disappeared into the woodlands opposite the field. Not wanting to stay, Kutinen slammed her foot down on the gas pedal and didn't remove it until they reached their destination, Avulu. Neither of the women would report the incident initially, not until an apparent encounter in the same region on February 5th. As the snow continued to fall well into the late afternoon, Lumberjacks, Peter, Aliranta, and Esko, Sneck, finally decided they were done for the day and began to pack up their equipment. It was a little after 3 p.m., but the sky was a gloomy white, and the snow showed no sign of abating. As Aliranta turned off his industrial-style chainsaw, he noticed a metallic object hovering just above the trees. The object was like two saucers on top of each other, with what appeared to be four legs on its underside. It began to descend towards the forest. As it did so, a circular window or doorway opened on the bottom of the craft. It continued downwards, seemingly coming to a stop in a small clearing about 50 feet in front of them. The lumberjack continued to watch the scene as his partner finished his last cut of the day and was unaware of the bizarre event unfolding before him. From the circular gap, a three-foot-tall humanoid creature dressed in a one-piece green outfit emerged. The creature appeared to be wearing a helmet with a faceplate, similar to scuba divers. As soon as the creature touched down in the snow-covered forest floor, it began to make its way towards the two men. The movements of the creature were similar to an astronaut's motions on the moon, as it appeared to jump or hop towards them. At this moment, Aloranta flicked the switch on his chainsaw. This, it seemed, alerted his fellow lumberjack, who looked up to see the bizarre entity heading in their direction. For reasons he couldn't explain, Snack advanced towards the humanoid, his chainsaw still switched on, held out in front of him as if ready to attack. The creature continued to advance until it finally turned and headed back towards the saucer-like craft. Aloranta moved forward now also, joining Snack as he advanced towards the craft. As each man got closer, they could see several other humanoid creatures inside. The craft suddenly began to hover slightly above the ground, as if expecting the arrival of the creature. Aloranta lunged forward and grabbed the heel of the strange figure in an effort to stop it from boarding. When he did so, however, a jolt of pure pain like hot iron entered his hand. According to reports in local newspapers at the time, the wound would remain volatile for several months. Needless to say, Aloranta had let go of the creature, who then motioned itself upwards and into the craft. 
gusts of air begin to swirl around the clearing as the craft begin its rapid ascent. Within a matter of seconds, it had completely vanished out of sight. There were several markings in the snow following the craft's disappearance, but nothing else remained of the visitor's presence. Each of the men suffered a mild form of paralysis in the minutes following the encounter, and would not be able to leave for around an hour. The incident would attract the attention of both national and international media, as well as numerous UFO investigators over the years. Opinions remain divided. So, what exactly are we to make of the Lake Anten case and the many others reported in the Nordic regions? Could they all somehow be connected? And if so, how do these incidents fit into the wider UFO question? As always, it is the who and why that lurk in the background of these accounts. What might the purpose have been of these landing incidents? And why would these alleged objects land for such a brief time and then just take off again? Could it be that these craft are not alien in origin, but are instead some sort of top-secret military aircraft? And if that is the case, the same question applies. What is the purpose of the landings? With new sightings reported even up until today in the Nordic countries, as well as more and more government and official military files being declassified around the world, the amount of data we will have at our collective fingertips is only set to grow. And maybe with that data, patterns will emerge, and connections will almost certainly be made to bring us one step closer to finding the answers to the elusive mysteries that lay somewhere in the skies. This episode was co-researched and co-written by Marcus Loth and Fred Anderson. To learn more from Marcus, visit ufoinsight.com. For Fred, you can find his link tree in the show notes. Voiceover for this episode was provided by the following individuals. Ron Slotnick, Jane Moore, Bruce Pretty, and Nicholas Westmeyer. Their work can be found in the respective links in the show notes as well. If you haven't already, please consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever possible. It truly helps us gain visibility and find new listeners on these platforms. Also, word of mouth remains the best way to share the show. So please, share it with your friends, family, co-workers, or that random stranger in line at your local coffee shop. You can follow us on Twitter at SummerSkies and Instagram at SummerSkiesPod. Thank you to our sponsor, AMC Plus, and to the E1 Podcast Network, and a special thanks to you for listening. Remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies.
Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. A former blacksmith, 19 years... Shit, I have a cat fucking around here. F- fuck you, cat. Go, go. Psh, psh. I'm talking to Ryan here. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare insurance plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're say between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare insurance plans at uh1.com.